Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorne, action movie screenwriter. And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster. And together we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard. Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere. Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre. So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard. Ooh, very nice. Then Die Hard on a Blank is for you. Yes, you personally. Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, drop December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line. Now we have a podcast. (laughs) Ho, ho, ho. I'm Liam Greybeard Billingham. Whoa, I'm George. A little bit of Blackbeard? A little bit of gray in my beard? Forgopolis. And this is Oeuvre Buster. A special. But the other toddler, the other toddler, is asleep in the next room, and I'm speaking quietly. Hey, George, another turning point, a fork stuck in the road. I'm not a huge Doors fan, but you were. You so make the best of All right, here this. We go. That's Just got to let this ride out. It's not a Just, question, mm-hmm. but a lesson learning. Time. Yep. It's something unpredictable, but in the end, it's right. I hope you had the time of your. Is that off of Nimrod? Yeah, it's the second or third track off of Nim. Nim Warning. Nimrod is the no warning. It's not off of Warning. Positive, it's not off of Warning. Hang on, shut the fuck up. Look this it up. Look up the track listing right fucking now. And this is staying in the fucking no, episode. You know, it's 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 what what song has minority on it? It's on That's that warning. And it's yeah. not on warning. It is on warning. It, it's not on warning. Nope. Opening track of warning is the titular track. The second track is Oh shit. You're right. Minority is on. Minority is a great song. Minority is a great song, yeah. Green Day, uh what's it called? The Good Riddance. Yes. It's it, off of... Oh, it's off Nimrod. <laughs> <laughs> you dumbass. Well, you, folks, what you don't know out there in Radioland is that Liam called me a dumbass right before we started recording, and it turns out I was right. <laughs> well, it wasn't that you were right. It's that you weren't well, wrong. I wasn't it's wrong. rarity. And um, I'm not wrong this time. But do you, know why I, do you know why I was singing that song? I think I could guess, Liam. Why, you George, want... Giorgio? Go All right, it. I'll just say it. Um, this is our final episode of our Akira Kurosawa Toshiro Mufuni season. This is the end, my friend, the end. Good God, where did all those helicopters flying over Saigon appear in the background? <laughs> um, this It's true, it's our last <laughs> it's our last episode of the Kuro Kurosawa and Toshiro Mufune 
season 20 something episodes i don't know the number of guests that we've had for this season but i think it's been our most i'll definitely say it's been our most too, listened to season i'll say that for sure because three too, people listened too many guests to count and that's just because i'm really bad at math um what film are we talking about today Man, we George? were talking about 1965's red beard starring of course tashir mafuni and I think we should just dive into it now to say this plot summary. Yeah, the give it to me, baby. It's from the <laughs> magical, magical year of give it to me, baby. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yep, that song magical. came out also in 1965. <laughs> from the magical of year of 1965. George, would you like to tell us what happens in Redbeard? Liam, I was just about to before you mentioned <laughs> you fucking idiot. the offspring. How many, how many uh, 1990s era bands, band references can we squeeze in? To this episode, so so far, Green Day, uh, The Offspring. I think I'm going to try to squeeze in a modest mass reference at some point. So, um, yeah, Red Beer tells the story of Noburo Yasumoto, a young, selfish doctor who's sent by his father from Nagasaki to a rural rural clinic, rural rural clinic that is run by the titular Red Beard, um, otherwise known as Doctor Kyojo Nidi. Nide. Uh, Nide. Sorry, Yasumoto. <laughs> Yes, maybe I'm the one that's needy, if you know what I mean. Uh, I, I, can, I can, 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 can verify. Can, can verify. Um, Yasumoto at first is appalled by the state of his poor and despairing patients and by the gruff de- uh, demeanor of Dr. Nide. Um, over time, Yasumoto comes to admire the doctor and to deeply care about his patients, especially a young abused girl by the name of Otoyo, who is saved from a syphilitic brothel, believe it or not. At the very end, Yasumoto is given the opportunity to get the job he has always dreamed of, working at the Shogun's court. However, he declines the position uh, to continue working at the clinic. The end. The end. Um, George, yeah. this, film was direct- <laughs> this film was directed by Akira Kurosawa. It was produced by Ryozo Kukushima and Tomoyuki Tanaka. The screenplay was by Akira Kurosawa, Ryozu Kukushima, Masato Ide, and Hideo Agune, the usual, the guys that always write with Kurosawa. You read the Galbraith chapter. Um, I read mm-hmm. it a while ago. Did he mention any of the like exotic spa days that they had while they were writing their <laughs> scripts? Because that's how they wrote their scripts. That sounds amazing. Spas. Yeah, they would go to like a spa, get wasted, and write every no day. No wonder uh, Kurosawa was so prolific. Tell me about it. Uh, the book, the film is based on a short story collection by Shiguro Yamamoto, um, who also wrote the the pieces that would inspire, among others, Sanjuro and Dode Descaden, which came later, and a few others. And also partly, and I'm, this is something I'm sure we're going to talk about, because even though I didn't know this before I watched the film, it felt very Dostoyevsky-esque. And it was based on Dostoevsky's novel, The Humiliated and the Insulated. Insulated? Insulted. Your fucking notes say insulated. The Humiliated nah. and the Insulted. You're not supposed music, to read the typos. The music, <laughs> the music <laughs> is by Masaru Sato. The cinematography is by Azakazu Nakai and Taiko Sato. And the film was edited by Akira Kurosawa. The cast includes... Toshiro Mifune as Dr. Kyojo Nide, or Redbeard, Yuzu Kayama as Noboro Yasumoto, Tomori Niki as Otoyo, Tatsutomo Yamazaki as Sahachi. Tatsutomo Yamazaki was the kidnapper in High and Low and is 
fucking incredible in this movie. Uh, Kyoko Kagawa, who was also in High and Low as Mifune's wife, plays the Mantis in this film. And a few, uh, there's a couple smaller great performances by Kurosawa regulars. Among them, um, Ijiro Tono plays a brief role as a character named, apologies, Gohije. Um, he, that's the gentleman that played the guy who ran the inn or the sake place mm-hmm. in Yojimbo and also had a brief role in, brief role in high low as like a working class guy who gives some information to the cops. Um, Takashi Shimura plays sort of like, um, an aide to the magistrate in the film. It's a very, very brief role. A very brief there. role. Yeah. Um, Tok- he plays Tokube Izumiya and in a blink and you won't, you will miss him performance Bokuzen Hidari who shows up in the beginning of the film as a patient Bokuzen Hidari who played um, a villager in Seven Samurai the villager that Mifune takes under his sort of wing in that film he's basically in every Kurosawa film that comes before this and um, interestingly Chiyusu Ryu plays Mr. Yasumoto the father of the main character Chiyusu Ryu is probably best known as playing the father in Tokyo Story which if you've seen mm. Yasuhiro Ozu's talk, Tokyo Story this is among the most, um, it's like sort of one of the most indelible characters in all of cinema. I mean, like that movie is, have you seen, are you a Tokyo Story fan? Oh, uh, yeah. Who isn't a Tokyo Story fan? It's fascists. Uh, true. Yeah. Fucking fascists. Can't appreciate that movie. Um, some facts about production. The filming started on December 9th, 1963. Uh, three days before Yasuhiro Ozu died on December 12th, 1963. Every so often when I'm watching these movies, I, I'm like, wow, most of the people involved with these movies died before I was even born. That's a weird thing to think about. Um, <laughs> Always make just think about mortality. The that's but by, by the way, I mean, do you know, I, I haven't read the Galbraith cover to cover, but did like Ozu and Kurosawa have any kind of relationship? I'm sure, yeah, they knew each other. Yeah, they knew each other. I mean, I think that the, the industry was so small then that it was hard not for them to know each other. And because the system was in place where like they were, you know, bouncing between studios or actors were certainly, yeah, I think everyone at that point in the industry would have known each other, at least, you know, in passing. Mm-hmm. Um, the filming for this, the filming of this, Geez, this film took over a year to film and the entire production took something like two years. The film was super successful in in Japan, both critically and financially. Um, it's the last feature. So this this film the and the um, this t- Stephen Prince talks about this a lot in the commentary track, but this is the last Kurosawa film to be shot in 235.1, which is the, you know, Toho cinemascope aspect ratio. Mm. And by far the most cinema friendly format that had ever that's ever been used you know big films still shoot 235 or 240 and that's because it's the widest aspect ratio and kurosawa you know made in the widescreen aspect ratio among others the hidden fortress yeah. jimbo sanjiro bad sleep well high and low in this film and you know as steven brins points out in the commentary track which i unfortunately did not get a chance to listen to as much of as i would have liked um He's the, one of the great widescreen filmmakers, like almost no question. It's kind of annoying that a guy who did everything that he was able to do also was the most incredible composer of images. But after this film, he went back to the more TV-friendly 1851 aspect ratio, which filmmakers were starting to use partially because of the pressure of, of films airing on television, which is an interesting thing to think about. Yeah. I think when you consider... 
It also goes to show that's the same uh, format that I think Kurosawa shot all those um, All in the Family episodes, right? <laughs> I think he. That's actually 1661 or 43. Oh, yeah. If you really want to be particular about it. But it was weird what he spent a season directing All in the yeah. Family. He was the, the one that told he was the one that told O'Connor to call uh, Rob Reiner a meathead. That's where it originated from. Oh, he's like, I didn't. You, yeah, he's like, I have a great idea for your character. Call your son-in-law a meathead. It's like he's like you got it. This guy's a genius. This guy's a genius. <laughs> amazing. Um, so it seems like this film was um, sort of like a passion project for Kurosawa, and it was a huge, sure, huge production. Yeah. There were massive sets. Um, massive sets were built for the film. Some of them were not even um, <laughs> utilized in filming, which I think is kind of crazy. But you can feel the meticulousness of the compositions and the scope and the way that <laughs> things are. So when I read that fact, made. it reminded me of like apparently Visconti, uh, in, when filming the leopard, like filled all of the drawers like with clothes, for example, for like a lot of the interiors. And like Burt Lancaster was like, "Why the fuck would you do that? Because like nobody's gonna even see them." And he was like, "Well, because like you'll know that they're there." Wow, it's kind of like an interesting nod to like verisimilitude. Yeah, and well, I think that for certain types of films. It's almost like you need it for the film to feel like a fully realized, you know, sure, yeah. project or production. Um, the the parts of the set are based on a real clinic, um, Kokushikawa Nursing Home, which was built in 1722. And Kokushikawa is the name of the district that in Tokyo that Kurosawa's family moved to. So it definitely has like a personal ah. resonance for him. A um, couple more things about the production of the film that I thought were interesting. Um, materials used, and this is something that comes up later in his films as well, and we should say that this was probably the end of the most productive period of Kurosawa's career. I think it's worth saying that like, we've talked about the most productive period because he made, this was his 24th film. His 16th with Mifune. Mm-hmm. He made nine films before he started. Well, no, he made. I guess he made seven or eight films before he started to work with Mifune. He made sixteen with Mifune, and he also made Ikiru in that period. So, in t- from nineteen forty four to nineteen sixty five, he made twenty four films. God damn. Um, from nineteen sixty five until like nineteen ninety, he made like five films, mm-hmm. which is an interesting thing to talk about. Um, but. So this the um the set was intended to be as realistic as possible. There were, you know, back alleys, spots, some some things that were never filmed. Materials that were used to for in the film were as old as they were supposed to be. Like that the roofs on the buildings were over a century old and all the timber was fa- was taken from old yeah. farmhouses. Costumes were aged and bedding was slept in for a year and a half or up to half a year before they filmed with it. It's insane, which is like, yeah. But it, I think it makes a difference. You know, it's like, it's one of those things where you watch, like someone was talking, I was listening to an interview recently about Judas and the Black Messiah, about how like the costumes were so good in that film because it didn't feel like they'd come off a rack and put on the actors, mm-hmm. which is how costumes so costumes so often feel in movies. They don't feel like anyone's worn them before they shoot the movie. Uh, McFooney's beard took three months to grow. That makes me feel a lot better as a man. <laughs> And there was a lot of experimentation with trying to dye it to get it exactly how it was supposed to look on film. Um, Which is nuts because the film, as you point out in the notes, was in black and white. Um, 
This was the final film. The final that film. Kurosawa and Mufune made together. Swan song. This is the end, my only friend. The end. Um, and this is the final episode of the podcast. No, yes. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> so apparently, so from what I understand, Mufune's earnings for most of the films he made with Kurosawa was like $5,000. Now, that's seems like it was probably a lot of money at the time, but it didn't matter if he was shooting a film for three months or a year. He made right. the same amount of money. He was becoming more famous abroad. He'd made a film in Mexico. He'd made films in Europe. He was, despite not speaking English, had this like sort of career that was getting him, making him bigger and bigger and bigger. And I, I think at this point, it's kind of sad to think, but it's a little bit like Kurosawa calling him in to do a movie is a little bit like, hey, can you come, can you come back and make this small little film, right? Mm-hmm. And I think at this point, Mufune had started a production company. He wanted to shoot a commercial for the film. And he had the beard and, Muf- and Kurosawa was angry that he shot a commercial while bearded because that was supposed to be the look for that he was supposed to have for red beard. Yeah. Um, and it's just interesting to think like, that seems very Kurosawa asked to be like, I can't believe me to fuck a movie with, with the beard for the movie. And to be fair, it's a very, very distinct beard. Like it's, he looks different in this film. Than he does than any other film. Yeah. And he's so fucking famous in Japan that I weirdly understand it. But it's interesting to think about it. Like the idea that like, there must have been more going on between the two of these. Oh, of course. Just being like, yeah. I'm mad about your beard. Well, I think it's, a, I mean, I think it's like a, it was probably also an ego thing on both their ends, but I could imagine also so much more on Kurosawa's end of like, I made you. And, you know, especially the kind of like, who, who, do, who the fuck do you think you are walking off the set? Even for, you know, I don't know, a day or two to make this, to film this commercial for a pharmaceutical company, apparently. Um, it was one so of those commercials that airs during the Super Bowl that's like you're throwing a football and it's like using this drug may result in death. Yeah. Explosion of diarrhea. <laughs> cancer. You might turn into the Incredible Hulk. No one knows. I think, yeah, Curse, I was just upset that he was uh, filming a commercial for Pfizer. He's like, you're making, you're making commercials for dick pills on we, the side? We are a Moderna family yeah. in this house. In this, how dare you? But, um, it's, but I, I wrote in the notes that it's like the original... Um, uh, Henry Cavill like mustache controversy. Of course, no, that's just clearly what it's based on. Yeah. Um, so I think Kurosawa asked the, that commercial like, can you spend like a million dollars to CGI <laughs> Mifuni's beard off of his face? Hey, can you be fucking serious about the end of the greatest direct actor director relationship of the twentieth century? You know what it is. My, fu- my fucking heart is breaking because this is coming to an end. So I have to make jokes. All right, that's, that's how, how I fucking you, process. That's it. how you process it. That's how I fucking um, process it. After this film, Mufune would continue to make a number of films, successful films, while Kurosawa would struggle to make really anything. Um, you know, we won't, maybe we'll cover these films in the future, but in the, I believe in this, the, the 70s, Kurosawa attempted suicide mm-hmm. um, and was unsuccessful, thank goodness. And I don't, I think despite Mufune having a successful career, I think it's fair to say that they, the the heights they kind of achieved as a, actor director combination they would never achieve for sure yeah. ever again and you know there are stories that kurosawa was supposed to or that mifune was supposed to play um hidatora in iran but um 
Kurosawa, or he was too expensive, and they couldn't get him to do it, and so Whoa. he wasn't able to appear in Ron. So, who knows? Anyway, George, what did f- you think of the f- what? Oh, that would have been just been amazing to see him come back for like one last swan song. Well, he was also rumored. I, uh, forget, let me look it up really quickly. But there's another part in Ron of a um, of a, the one of the characters whose name is. Kurogane, um, mm-hmm. who's Jiro's Jiro, the the one Hidetora's the second son, the his advisor and the military commander. Oh yeah, that yeah. Part was written for Mafune. Like that was uh, that was what he was going to play, um, but it didn't didn't turn out that way, which is unfortunate to say the least. However, Ron is you know among the greatest pieces of art of the last hundred years. So could, still an still an absolute banger. Yeah, total banger. What do you think of Redbeard? I also thought Redbeard was a banger, not quite on the level of Ron, of course, but I actually, I wasn't, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed watching it. I'm glad I, I watched it. At times it was a bit of a, like a slog because it is over three hours. Three hours and five minutes. <laughs> to be exact. No, but who's keeping track? I was, I f- it took forever. <laughs> I found the, um, the form of it like really fascinating. It's more kind of a series of vignettes. And obviously that there is this kind of moral arc in this arc to the uh, Yasumoto's character. He does change. Obviously, he goes from a certain point to another point in the film, the very film's end. So he does grow as a character. But it is very vignette And um, yeah, I don't know. That like appealed to me. Like the, the nested narrative about like the two tragic lovers where for like a half hour the film becomes about this totally different story. Right, about... um. Uh, Shahachi and Onaka, right? Yeah, and I thought like that, for example, was really fascinating. And obviously, you can't do that in a film that's ninety-five minutes long, but you can in a film like this. So I appreciated it for its kind of novelistic scope. Hmm. Yeah, I. So I watched this movie in chunks, which was unfortunate, but it's just how it worked out. Um, and I think. So I think it it. It, I'm also simultaneously watching The Nick, mm. the, the show, the Cinemax show, which is interesting because they're both, both shows are kind of about uh, newcomers into uh, pre-established settings and the tensions that exist in those two things. Well, medical um, settings too. Yeah. And medical settings. Yeah. Um, the Nick, by the way, talk about a banger. Jesus Christ. But um, I liked this film. I think maybe, you know, this is, again, a great example of like, boy, I would have killed to have seen this in a movie theater and be mm-hmm. stuck in a space for three hours and, 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 and digest it that way. Because at times it feels like a, I know this is, you know, kind of reductive, but it feels like a season of television <laughs> okay, as opposed to just a movie. And I think that the, the sort of digressive vignette structure worked really well for me. There's a scene towards the beginning where, um, Mantis, played by Kyoko Kagawa, shows up in um, Yasum- Yasumoto's room, and there's a long, sustained sequence where, like, she tells him about her life, and then she tries to stab him, and it's like s- incredible long take filmmaking, and just like out of control. And the sequence where um, Onaka uh, is like walking around the post earthquake t- mm-hmm. village is like some of the most amazing filmmaking. But from the moment that Yasumoto kind of comes around and starts wearing the uniform, I feel like 
the movie's arc kind of runs out there and then we have another hour of the film where we meet Chobo, the little boy, who's absolutely charming and adorable. And he begins to take her care of um, the girl named, whose name, uh, Otoyo. And it just like, the second half of the movie just did way, way less for me. I agree. Than yeah. the first half did. It just kind of lost a little bit of its steam. Well, the second half also is far more melodramatic, I think, which is kind of incredible to say about a film where, again, in the first half, you have these two tragic lovers in which the one lover kind of forces the other lover to kill her <laughs> in a kind of almost um, like assisted suicide. Interesting. Yeah. I just, it feels like this is a movie, like, you know, I sometimes joke about this, like, I love Michael Mann's Miami Vice because it's the most Michael Mann movie he ever made. Like, you can barely understand what anybody's saying. It's, like, so deep in the undercover mm -hmm. stuff that you're like, what's going on here? Like, it's, I really like directors making exactly the movie they want to make, and this feels like Redbeard is this culmination. It's also the end of a lot of aspects of Kurosawa's professional career, uh, last Mifune film, last black and white film, and his filmmaking style changes drastically once yeah. he's shooting in color. Um, gone are the multiple cameras, gone are the, a lot of the sort of like, st the play-like staging. There's some of that in like Ron and some of the later films, which admittedly I don't know as well as this film, but this is also sort of like the last film he made, I think, with Toho really until like, I think things changed. He couldn't get funding anymore because they were leaning more on things that were going to make a lot of money. And his cinema was kind of on the way out. Um, but I also think that sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, Oh, the director had all the freedom they want. And you're like, I sometimes wish a producer though had stepped in and been like, let's cut 25 minutes out of this movie. Well, that's not yeah. to say that it's anything less than compelling, but it's, if, if we're looking for a movie that makes a definitive kind of statement, this is not that kind of movie. Though, be curious to see, talk a little bit about some of the things that the movie does seem to say. Although I would say, I mean, again, we don't know, but I would also assume that if Kurosawa totally had his way and if he wanted to, or if he could, he would have made a four or five hour film like that what you have here might in fact be not obviously like a truncated version or some sort of kind of concession to the studio. But I mean, I feel like he was still like, okay, yeah, you know, like a three hour, five minute, like it's not like, it's not saying tango. It's, it's not like a length that is True. absurd. It is for us, of course. But I mean, again, like you need 1965, you're talking about these kind of longer epic like films. I mean, fucking, Avengers Endgame is three hours, isn't it? Yeah, but... But there's a lot more pur purple demigods in that for sure. Hey, uh, speaking of the context, can I briefly read these... Oh, I love it when you read to me. These two oh, paragraphs from, from Stuart Galbraith's Emperor and the Wolf, because again, we've been referencing it the entire season. Yeah, we, um, we got we to like send that guy like a box of chocolates or something like that. Something. Read, read away. Um, but Okay, so this is obviously in the chapter on Redbeard. Indeed, the Bond films ushered in a wave of hipper, poppier Western influences that drew crowds away from the mannered Jedi Geki samurai adventures and genial salaryman comedies of the past decade. Beyond the gargantua 007 craze, bigger in Japan than in any other part of the world, save America, 1965 saw these influences strike the island nation with tidal wave forces. 
From the arrival of the miniskirt to the explosion of Erike, American and British-influenced pop music led by electric guitars, wailing derivative riffs. Younger filmmakers heavily influenced by the French New Wave began turning out films as far removed from the old masters as Godard was from John Ford. In terms of content, Kurosawa probably thought Redbeard's narrative of self-realization, its criticism of the class system while championing selfishness and aiding the downtrodden would be fashionable and appealing to the mod generation. Yet Redbeard was, in many ways, the culmination of a style on the way out. So that just reminded me of what you were saying about how this film is very, very indicative of a certain kind of moment in Kurosawa's career. Well, yes, I agree. And like, the changes, the, the, not just only like curse, like personal changes for Kurosawa, but also kind of historical and social changes. That the film is both responding to and also kind of antagonistic to, perhaps. The movie feels very modern, right? It feels like it's kind of in the sense that you 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 feel like you're watching something that's kind of a play, a character drama. There's no like huge big reveals there's like a an earthquake but there isn't like you feel like you're moving through time in a very linear way there's no action sequences save like one brief fight that's pretty cool Just fucking amazing yeah fucking amazing it's interesting when you talk about the bond films and their popularity because in 1967 two years after this film there's a bond film set almost entirely in japan you only live twice which oh. well stay hugely racist movie mm -hmm. where he where he's made up to be Japanese to infiltrate oh, a small God. village. Have you seen it? I Maybe I have, but it's I don't fucking, remember it. It's a fucking banger of a James Bond movie. It's so good. Um, and, you know, it has a character named Tiger Tanaka in it. And, like, it's, you know, it's definitely a product of its time. But I wonder if the popularity of Japan made the made them go like, oh, we should make a film in Japan because there's like a scene where he goes to like a sumo wrestling match and like, you know, it really digs into what it's trying to do. And as it is based on a an Ian Fleming book. It is the you Only Live Twice is based on one of them. And it's, I believe, yeah, it, it takes place in Japan. So I think that there was probably some sort of marketing interest in doing it, yeah. doing that and going for it. But it does feel like a film on its way sort of out of the larger it doesn't feel like a like a, a even though it was successful, you could you can feel how this might be the last sort of hurrah. It's interesting how this film is his final film with Mufune, which his first film with Mufune is about a, a doctor yeah. who's kind of angry and tired in in Takashi Shimura and Drunken Angel who is challenged by a younger kind of upstart. Granted, in that film, it's Mufune playing a gangster, but it feels like in this film, Mufune has moved into the Takashi Shimura role of the aged doctor. Yeah, and I mean, what's incredible also about this film is obviously Mufune's all over it, but he's not in it nearly as much as I he's, thought it was going to be. Actually, I think he's barely in it, to be yeah. totally honest. He's, he really, like, he only well, has over the, the entire span of a three-hour film, yeah, it feels very slight on the Mufuni. I feel like he has maybe an hour of screen time, maybe an hour and a half in this movie. He's just not in it that much because it's much more about um, it is much more about uh, Yoshimoto than yeah. it is about than it is about Redbeard. Um, and the actor also Kayama was like the new hot shit on the scene mm -hmm. when he made yeah. this film. It's also interesting to think that you know, they're Mufune and 
um, Mifune and Kurosawa made Drunken Angel together in what, 1950? Was it even 1950? Was it? I think it was 1948, right? Oh, you mean how quickly their like, so relationship 48, kind of lasted? Well, between 48 and 65, you know, he ages 17 years. But he is, in this film, Mifune is 1920. He's 45 years old. But he feels much older than 45. He yeah. feels like he's it's meant to be 60 or something like For that. For sure, yeah. And pulls and it so off. He's, he's aged up, you know, drastically. But it does feel like there's something meta about the idea of, first of all, when he shows up on screen, he's facing the other way and you're like, that's Mifune. It has to be Mifune. Like, mm-hmm. that's who he is. And so you have this feeling of like, maybe this is all in retrospect, but it does feel like the end of something. It doesn't, Mifune is no longer the central character. He's in the Shimura role. Yeah. And I think that that feels very, very significant to me. And the fact that Shimura is only in this film for 45 seconds uh, compared to, you know, Mifune's screen time. But I also wonder if there's a little bit of pride in Mifune to be like, I'm playing the old guy now. Mm. I'm 45 years old. Like, this is how you, it's just an interesting thing to think about in that regard. So you mean like a certain kind of sense of um, resentment at being cast in those kind of roles? Yeah, like or just like on the his, way career, his career was, I mean, he, I can imagine that at no point in history has uh, any film industry been sympathetic. It's definitely sympathetic, more sympathetic to aging men. That's obviously the case. But, you know, Mufune, you, know, you're, you get to a certain point in your career where I think you probably just want to get bigger and bigger and more successful and more successful and continuing to make, you know, I think one thing that about the Bond films that's worth noting is that the Bond films are international f- film projects. They're not just like, oh, we went to like, you know, uh, France and shot this little movie at a vineyard. These are movies that span decades. They span cultures. They span casts. Like it's one of the early examples of like franchise filmmaking where it's like we need people from all over the world to make these movies. And when you're the most famous fucking guy in Japan the idea of like, oh, I want to make movies in the West, which he'd already started to do. It wasn't like yeah. he wasn't doing that stuff. But, I mean, he made Red um, Red Sun, if I remember correctly, in Red Sun in 1971. So, you know. A few years after this, He was yeah. in Helen Pacific in 1968, John Borman's film. So, like, his career was moving in a direction where, like, maybe he could achieve some kind of international success. And... Kurosawa wasn't, I mean, Kurosawa made what? One movie outside of Japan? Dode Deskaden? No, Derzu Uzala, which is the Soviet Union. He tried to make, he was working, it's a really actually tragic story. He was working on, I think it was Tora, Tora, Tora. And he got fired, right? Well, yeah, but he had like, a, again, according to Stuart Grailbeck's The Emperor and the Wolf, he had like a nervous breakdown of some kind. And yeah, they basically removed him from the film, but it's like really, really sad. Like, I mean, he like legitimately had like a nervous breakdown, so they had to remove him from production. That is sad. It's sad. Sad to think it's about. Sad. Um, it's sad. What else it's can sad. be said? It's sad. So, damn, that's sad. I think, damn, 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 damn. I think one thing to talk about with this film that's interesting is late in the film, there is a scene where Mifune goes to. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is how ingrained it is in, in the way that we think about him. Yasumoto, Mosumoto, played by Kayama, goes to Mifune and admits, like, I was an asshole to you. I wanted to get out of here. Like, I'm a jerk. I'm all these things. 
And it's sort of an admittance. You know, the film begins with him wanting to be like a shogun's, shogunate magistrate's mm. um, personal physician. And by the end of the film, he chooses to remain at the clinic. And there's a moment in the film that I think is interesting where he admits to all of his faults. And it reminded me, it brought me all the way back to our first episode on Sanjiro Sugata and the scene where Sugata is in the water and he realizes mm. he has to transcend his own being, his own self. And that between that scene, which brought me back to that, and the fact that there's a young girl in the film who comes from a brothel and begins to sort of work in the clinic unofficially, nursing Yasumoto back to health, it reminded me a lot of Quiet Duel in the role of um, the young woman who, you know, comes in and and become and sort of has this back and this sort of back and forth relationship with Mifune. Her name escapes me, but she's in a lot of these really, really great early Kurosawa films. Well, Noriko Sengoku, yeah. who shows up in Quiet Duel. This film feels like a mixtape of a lot of Kurosawa's like interests. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we're going to obviously Quiet Duel as well with the, the use of the doctor to explore a lot of these themes that Kurosawa was interested in in terms of kind of care of others, um, ethical relationships, and also just kind of what it means to be in the, the mire of human misery. <laughs> Well, there's a there's a shit. There's yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. Go I, ahead. Oh, I just love like the opening sequences, like when he first comes, Kayama's character comes to the clinic and he's walking through all these different rooms and he's kind of like horrified by the, the mass, like the un the unwashed masses that are there and they're all like sick and dying, and yeah, you just get these again these vignettes or these shots of what this community looks like and never, he's kind of horrified by it. Yeah. No. There's. We talked about this a little bit in our um, episode on High and Low with Bill Gayabiri about how there's this inherent tension in Kurosawa's like politics or things that he might say. And I think this film amplifies that. And in the other words, like Kurosawa's like, you know, a capitalist to the bone, right? He makes these like, he, he's working in the film industry. He's making bigger and bigger films. He's getting paid more and more money. He's sort of like moving up. And like, he's one of these people who has managed to, I think, merge commerce and art in a way that very very few people in the history of films have gotten away with i mean like mm. to make these like you know commercially successful movies that are also stirring films about like the soul and and in the case of a film like this i think that this is a pretty profound film about empathy and who we choose to empathize with and yeah. who we choose to empathize with but it even goes back to something blake howard said in our seven samurai episode about how seven samurai can be interpreted as about being helping poor people it's about these guys who choose to help poor people. And this film has that as well, Yeah, which is there's a very good, very strong moment in the film where Mufune says something like, what has politics ever done for the poor? And so there's this constant recurring idea that plays out in this film and many others about how people in a society have a certain obligation to help the poor Though I don't necessarily think that that reflects on Kurosawa as him being like liberal or anything like that. I don't think there's any easy read of Kurosawa's politics, except that he clearly is concerned with the well-being of others. Yes. First and foremost, yes, we do live in a society. Just to drop in that meme. But also to... We live in a society! To th that So... Uh, you talking made me think, is it in I know, a certain kind of way? usually what happens. So many fucking brilliant insights just pouring out of that head. Thank um, you. <laughs> that 
baseball, the black, gray beard. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> fucked it up. What the, f- what the fuck were you trying to say? Fuck. <laughs> Edit this out. Fuck this. Damn. 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 Fuck, fucked it up. Damn. Um, She's got a great ass. I don't know what just, that Well, just break it out to the Pacino. It's always a good way to just kind of reset, right? <laughs> the reason I the Pacino. I had coffee with Macaulay half an hour ago. <laughs> The Pacino reset. I love it. It's a classic. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. That count. That setting this film then in the past suggests a, again, a certain nostalgia, perhaps for that past. Just to kind of suggest that like mm. contemporary Japanese society is fucked. Why? Because we've been bondified or westernized, and what we're gonna do is and not again in some sort of conscious way, but even whatever. Even if it's not conscious. It's still viable for critique. So by couching it in the past, right, by showing like, see, this is how people were in the past. They were not selfish. They sacrificed for one another. That there is a kind of conservative politics of that. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. But also the flip side to that is that the reflection of the past is not a like a rosy-eyed one in the sense that like, the people at this sure. clinic aren't necessarily happy to be working at the clinic. Like, you know, it, it makes you think about community service jobs, nonprofit jobs, the kind of jobs where like you're there to uplift people or to help them. And, you know, I mean, like as someone who spent a long time working in a nonprofit, I'm like somewhat suspicious of many, many nonprofits and what their goals actually are. But like totally for a variety of reasons. But like the idea of like showing up every day and doing something noble and meaningful well, important, this movie is not simplistic enough to suggest that, like, that's enough. You know what I mean? Like, it gives it gives a sounding board. There's a moment in the film where Yasumoto says something like, you know, you can make a lot of money curing, like, X, Y, Z, whatever it is in these films. So it's not like the movie is, like, singing kumbaya about these issues and saying, like, this is the right way to live. I think, mm-hmm. again, like, high and low, it's it's presenting a kind of, like, one might say dialectic ding ding <laughs> we should have like no, it doesn't exist but a recording of Karl Marx being like yeah good good <laughs> every time we say it then we just drop in but it isn't it of, mommy isn't it true that every time a, a brochalist <laughs> says dialectic a Marxist gets his wings Yes, honey, it is true. Yes, good. good. <laughs> it cuts to a picture it's like, of... It's of, Uncle Ted. Uncle of, Ted is... Of, Uncle of, Ted adorno. Of Marx and Engels in heaven just nodding approvingly. Yeah, that's <laughs> and good. And then Marx is like, can I have more money? <laughs> can I have more money, Cedric? Can I have more oh, money? Oh, this guy. Even in heaven, he keeps asking me for money. I just tell him, there's communism everywhere, Carl. Everything is free. <laughs> Your Carl is very good. You sound like a... Like Thank one you. of the terrorists in Die Hard. Carl. 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 Ah, oh, Die Hard. Die Hard, better movie. Better movie than Redbeard. Sorry to say. It's very debatable. Um, but <laughs> again, it's this tension that these movies set up between like, like one of the great things about High and Low that I hadn't really thought about it, Bill Gates points out, is like in a society, millionaires obviously need people to do these things. And in the case of that film, it kind of humbles him. It kind of makes him more of a, of a realized kind of person. And this feels like an interesting inversion of that in the sense that like, he's a, he's a poor doctor working in a, working for like the good of regular people. And he clearly has like opinions about the way the world is. And he clearly thinks the world is out of balance, out of whack. And yet like the movie never offers the easy answer of like, 
what we're doing is the right way to live either. And I think that like if there's Really? You think that? In some ways. I mean, I just don't I don't think the movie like tries to the movie suggests with its ending like that the the noble thing to do is to help poor people, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. But yeah. it but it doesn't to the movie's credit, it doesn't pretend that like this is some kind of utopian existence, right? Like oh, it's challenging and sure. hard and and yeah, I think no, that's no. an important aspect of, of the film being realistic. Right. It doesn't suggest, it doesn't, it doesn't imply that this will cure all the ills of society. But there's no way that these dudes aren't doing the right thing and that Yashimoto's character isn't doing the right thing by giving himself over to this clinic. Right, right. But I think that one of the things that I've, I've come to realize is that like these, a lot of these films are... A, these Caruso films are about the inherent tensions that are present in a society, in a culture, like there's in the small or large worlds, you know, it's interesting how like this film takes place in this like microcosmic clinic setting, like some of his early films, which, you know, this feels like a return to form in that sense. Like Kurosawa's early films are not flashy. I feel like the first mm -hmm. quote unquote flashy movie we get is, um, it's really stray dog. Right. And then he, you know, he does things like, um, Seven Samurai, Hidden Fortress, like these bigger blockbustery movies, and this feels like a, a maximalist, minimalist kind of film where it returns yeah. to the kind of small intimacy of those films. And part of it is that the whole the whole world is reflected in this little clinic, in the same way that the whole world is reflected in um, um, Congo's apartment, Kondo's apartment in High and Low. The same way that it is reflected in the kind of like corporate culture world of bad sleep well in the same way that there are these like opposing sides in the town that Yojimbo takes place in in Sanjuro like he can these last few films feel like they're they're creating these ideas of like questions of um who we help why we help them when we help them who has power who wants power like they it feels like a recurring idea of like we're going to examine very very smallish worlds in these films and then it keeps expanding out and expanding out and expanding out. And it's interesting how this film pulls in the sort of family at the end of the film, the sort of like well-heeled mm -hmm. parents or whoever you want to say they are. Um, and it sort of expands the world and the world becomes bigger. And there's that interesting wedding scene at the end where Redbeard shows up for Yasumoto's weddings and the parents are there. And like, he's sort of removed, he's sort of distant from them. He doesn't like, get close to them and try to this is an interesting film about how this interesting sort of again another movie where i'm a little flummoxed by kurosawa's politics because i think is it's like he can't help but be a rich guy making a movie about things that he genuinely cares about and maybe about uh a more a better quote-unquote better time as you pointed out yeah i mean i think i mean again i he strikes me as being somewhat apolitical, mm -hmm. um, obviously not that there are, that that his films aren't politically charged. I'm just saying that he, I think, would have like fooled himself into thinking that his worldview is apolitical. But there are moments, especially in a film like this, where again the critique of the class system is very apparent. I mean, maybe that's not fair actually to call him ap I'm apolitical. I just, but by that I mean, I just think that he would, he would say that he doesn't have an ideological um, ax to grind, but he clearly does believe in certain things like basic human dignity, the potential for humans to take care of one another, 
the potential to find value in human life. I think what you're also pointing out is that these sort of like modern labels of like left, right, conservative, liberal, of course, existed, but you didn't have to fall on one side of the spectrum quite as easily as quite as clearly as you're supposed to now. Right. Like you're, you're kind of just supposed to like, in a sense that like he's, he's not at all apolitical, but I think he's, he's complex. His views are complex because there's a little bit of, um, as you pointed out, there's a little bit of like, um, what's the word? A little bit of like envy or, or sort of an admiration towards Kong Kondo in uh, Gondo, sorry, Gondo in high and low. That's like kind of hard to stomach, but also makes total sense from the characters it's coming from in that film. Like you understand why they behave that way. And I don't read that. That is like Kurosawa ideologically being like, I love this millionaire. I think he's just creating a really strong story out of the elements of who the people are based on class, based on interest, based on who they are as people. I mean, I think what he admires are really strong individuals, whether or not those individuals are artists or capitalists. I think he's somebody who's very... Or doctors. I think he admires doctors. Or doctors, yeah. I mean, I just think he's somebody who's really, again, just kind of... That he sees himself, as uh, again, as this brilliant artist who because of his willpower is able to make these incredible films. And I think he oftentimes is exploring characters that are like him. Not that I think obviously a lot of these characters are strictly autobiographical. Um, It just like reminds me of like the Mifune's character in Scandal where... I just thought, yeah, me too. Yeah, where that's, I mean, and I think that's the only protagonist that that I can think of all the time who's like an artist and is not... Yeah, a doctor, or you know, again, a capitalist. Well, and you know, it's interesting to think or a samurai. That film sort of has this attitude of like things were better before, like tabloid journalism, for example, mm-hmm. or whatever the case is in that film. And it's interesting to think that this film is Redbeard, a Kurosawa stand-in, in the sense that like at a time when Bond is huge and these color films and like the world is moving on and everyone, because there's something interesting in the idea of Yasumoto as like a quote unquote celebrity. Like I want to be, I want to work for a magistrate because that's like a role of significance. Like I'm going to go to the city and get my fame and fortune, which is a very like, let's say, I don't know. It feels to me, I'm you, you would know better than me, but that, that the idea of like fame feels like an offshoot of like a post world war two kind of concept of media and the way that we like, you know, like, we all are, we all have something special and individual to say, like, let's, people didn't want to like cut rice in a field anymore. They wanted to like go do something larger with themselves. And here you have a, a sort of fatherly figure who's like, no, your role is to like the people. It's to a community. Mm-hmm. It's to a, um, and there's something to be read of Kurosawa being like, I'm going to, not that he was necessarily going out into the world, but like, I'm going to make films about Japanese people make a films about Japanese history. I'm going to make these films. I'm going to like use the infrastructure of the Japanese studio system. I'm going to try to maintain that. Like I'm just going to be here doing this thing and doing it really well and accepting no, it's like suffering no fools and you should join me. And the idea that like this, there's a, there's a way to read this film as being somewhat autobiographical about Kurosawa, uh, the end of a kind of way of living. For sure, yeah, yeah, and again, I think it's 
you have to also again like consider like how like Galbraith says something like the budget for this film was like ten times or something astronomical of a normal film at the time, normal Japanese film at the time. So it is again as this culmination of a certain kind of moment in Kurosawa's life, his life as an artist, and also just like in Japanese society is, yeah, it's 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 all over it. You also, we I think we sometimes tend to look back on these things and think of these films as almost inevitable in the sense that like, well, they happened mm. and they're all astonishing. Where it's like every film that a filmmaker makes, especially every film that anyone makes, even if it's a big, big budget film, like a Marvel film, yeah, they're they're like easier to make because there's an infrastructure. But like the people that made them generally have to like get there. They have to get to the point. It's where a they struggle, yeah, them. yeah. And I think the idea of Mifune or sorry, Kurosawa getting to this point and maybe, maybe he was able to see what was happening and going like, fuck, like I got to make this movie. I have to make, I have to make like a really grand, I'm going to make this fucking movie, a big, big movie. You know, he'd made a lot of big movies, but like this is a huge movie and you got to wonder if it was a little bit like, I got to do this before I can't do it anymore. You know, Mifune is not 35, 30 anymore. And like, going to get all the attention in the world he's 45 you know a lot of these actors things are moving in a different direction these some of these like bit players are going to take parts in james bond films or co-production international stuff they're going to go make smaller samurai films i he on some level you have to assume that his good films inspired a whole bunch of knockoffs that people were getting paid more money to make than they were yeah. if they kept to making like so it's interesting to watch the arc of a career go from like the most mainstream thing to like the thing that's kind of like oh him i remember that guy you know like not that yeah. he was a has been in 1965 but you know he's an artist but he also knew how to get a ma- movie made yeah and there's some kind of parallel would be like stanley kubrick right who made also so few films and obviously towards uh the end of his career the gap of years between films became more and more pronounced just the idea of i guess what you said just kind of reminded me again just how much of a of a business it is and well, well, you again know, I also have, go ahead sorry oh and just that you need shut the god fuck fucking up. god fuck up. i can't fucking wait how much more time do we have a couple more minutes we can fucking go on vacation i can't fucking wait um no that the again like you said you'd need a, like an industry and infrastructure you need a small army of people behind you to get these things made. Yeah, and I mean, Kubrick, I, I'm not knowledgeable enough about the, the, the productions of his films to really talk about the the infrastructure that they were, they were, that, you know, made them. But, you know, I would say that Kurosawa was an artist, but also he was a producer and he knew, and so was Kubrick. But like, you know, Kubrick made, what, 11 movies? 12 movies? Something maybe. like that, yeah. And you know Kurosawa walks out of his career having made thirty films. Not to not to apples and oranges, but like I think Kurosawa was prolific and wanted to be prolific. You know, I can imagine that his later career frustrations of not being able to get any financing for films probably yeah. contributed to his you know depression. For um, sure, yeah. But that's what I mean. I mean, just in the sense that they at some point, like I'm sure fucking somebody was just willing to constantly write checks for both of these dudes, right? For Kubrick and Kurosawa. And to just give them free reign, they would have made a shit ton more films. I'm just saying that obviously it became harder and harder right, to find exactly. money and to find interest to make the films that they wanted to make. Now I'm like, damn, I wonder what a Kurosawa Bond film would have been like. 
fucking you, man. Well, it's, I, still, I still want my Christopher Nolan Bond film. I worry that might be Tenant. Um, it definitely is. I think that this is the kind of movie that um, is definitely worth watching, and I hope to someday be able to see it on a big screen. I would like go on a Tuesday night to this. I think it would really, really contribute to the film's yeah, of course, film success. But. Um, and also briefly, and we didn't really talk about it, but that fight scene is incredible. It's a great fight scene. It's really, really good. And you can see that Mifune is doing all of his own shit. Yeah. He knows how to beat the piss out of these guys. Um, and the sound effects are amazing. You can hear those bones crack. It's great. It's real, real good. And this is a good movie and worth watching. And I think particularly worth watching if you have watched the 15 other films that these guys made together. Um, which we did, and that's why this is the end the of end. this season. I can't. We did it. We did it. Damn. When did we start? Like back in July. July. June or July? I think July. Hang on. Well, hang on. I have it actually open because I wanted to take a minute and thank a few people because we got. We did it. Our, our first episode was released. July. July. 27th of damn. 2020 and it damn. is now damn it is damn. going to be March, late march so we did this for is our, this is our <laughs> longest season is this our longest season it's gotta be right it's a long season yeah i mean the batman season felt really long but i think so this might be about the longest six months season. this was about i don't know a lot of months um i don't want to you know dwell too much on this but i think that these are all great movies about living in a society and i think the great my discovery, the movie that I discovered in this process, the one that I think is going to stay with me the longest, is High and Low. No, um, <laughs> <laughs> you love High and Low. That's my favorite. It's my favorite movie. I think The Idiot mm. is definitely the film that sort of I was stuck with me the most. A lot about The Idiot while watching this because yes. I was like, God damn, if The Idiot was just like a half hour longer, it'd be so much, so much better. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, and I love that film. I thought it was like a you know a small, a minor masterpiece. But again, you know that it's been cut to pieces yeah that's true that's true um a couple people to thank i think the first person we should probably thank is Stuart galbraith yes who was a guest on the first episode of the season or not the first episode i should say but an early episode of the season talking about drunken angel and his book has been our bible his book has been our bible Uh, he's wonderful guy wonderful to take the time to talk to us i mean it's probably a weird thing to get a call like hey you're this book you wrote 30 years ago we'd like to talk to you about it but he was open to it and he was really great um, Nancy Schwartzman talked to us about No Regrets for Our Youth. Joyce Wu, who's apparently starting her own podcast, Stray Dog. I just want to thank some of the people. Alyssa Wilkinson talked about Rashomon. A.S. Hamra talked about The Idiot. Blake Howard, our buddy, talked about The Seven Samurai. Isaac friend, Butler. Who? What? Our friend what? Randy. Yeah. We're, I'm getting there. For oh, sorry, sake. sorry, 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 sorry. Isaac Butler talked to us about Throne of Blood. Throne of Blood. Uh, Randy Wilkins. Talk to us about the Hidden Fortress. Ingu Kang talked to us about the bad sleep well. Mm-hmm. Brian Cogman joined us for Yojimbo. Our old buddy Jose Rodriguez talked to us about Sanjuro. Bill Gayabiri. Hi, Jose. Bill Gayabiri talked to us about high and low. Some of these folks will hopefully be back for our next season, which we'll Fingers talk about. Fingers crossed. And Jessica Chiba talked to us about Ron, which was. We recorded in like the beginning of the season. We and did, just yeah. released last week. It's been a great season. I feel like this has been the most rewarding season. It's been a lot of fun, for sure. 
That's all you got. That's all you. That's, fucking, all, that's, all, you that's all. That's all I got. Also, yeah, this, saw a couple of great films. Made a few friends <laughs> on the journey. Another turning point. Forks in the road. No, it's been I fun. backed my car into a cop car the Little. other day. That's way later. That's like 2004. Time uh, of your life is from 1997. You're right. Well, yeah, bad people. Good news for people who love bad news is, from is like, is it is after it, September 11th? Definitely. Bad news for people who like good news. Is it that? I mean, I wouldn't. Would you be surprised if it was like 99? Yeah. You need a win. You need a win on this episode. So let's see. <laughs> I know, so, right? This is so exciting for the people like out there, right? 2003. 2004, yeah, you're right. Well, you know what they say, even a broken clock every once you know, in a while. You know what else they say? Fuck you. <laughs> you know what, hey, you know what else they say? Why don't you go fuck yourself? Why don't you go fuck go yourself, fuck Tommy? Which um, reminds me, I need to go back and see Goodfellas again. That's a good flick. Um, this has been a great season. Thanks, everybody. We're going to take a break. I don't know how long. A couple of years. <laughs> couple of years. And then we're going to come back with a season on... George, you want to say who it's on? I think we've said it a lot of times. but yes, have we? It, yeah, I think we have. Oh. But it, it is on Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty, actor, director, producer. And also, a guy who kind of started, interestingly... There's two things that are interesting about this. One, he started around the same time that Kur- Kurosawa stopped making as many films as he was, mm-hmm. like mid late fifty, you know, nineteen sixties, and um, he kind of came up. He kind of, I'm curious to see how much interaction or overlap or any kind of relationship he would have had with John Cassavetes, because I've never heard them talked about together. But they were making oh, that's an interesting exactly connection, yeah, the same time, and they're both writer, director, producer, sort of like. I mean, Beatty is as Hollywood as you can get, and obviously Cassavetes was not, but similar kind of maleishness started as actors and graduated into something else, and very, very important guy for for the 1960s and 70s into the 90s. Yeah. And he's Dick Tracy. He was, so, yeah. And our people have reached out to his people, and we're still waiting to hear back from him because he's still alive, so maybe he'll appear on the podcast. He's it's the not going to happen. He's the it's only not per- you happen. don't know that. You don't know that. He's the only person who's been on the podcast that we've that's been a subject of this podcast that's either not dead or real. <laughs> I was about to say, he's Pretty- Batman dead? <laughs> he's not real, George. What? Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Damn. Um, Just crushing my fucking illusions. When we get there, and um, we're going to be probably going to be dropping one a month of that we're going to slow slow it we'll down figure hey hey bit. folks folks you don't worry get about on, it this is a patreon ad. this yeah. is a patreon ad we yeah join the patreon to get regular episodes because we're going to be course. doing more of those as well my foot's asleep i just realized how asleep my foot yeah i've been is. sitting on it oh, i also need to go back into the basement and turn the heat on again wait, for the building you've been sitting on my foot i have been sitting on your foot is that what i said I, I, I said I was sitting on my foot. There's a nasty joke to be made here, but I'm just going to... Hi-ho. Hi-ho. This is Uberbusters After Dark. Thanks, everybody, for uh, for joining us for this season. So many new so many new fans, so many people have listened. Thank you it's all. It's been exciting. Uh, we love you. Uh, rate, review, subscribe to the show. Write, write a review. Now that the season's over, write a review. That's like, these fucking guys, they're so great. Yeah. I hope they come back soon. Yeah. And... um. I love you guys. I I I think very highly of you all. I wouldn't uh, say I love you. I wouldn't you say I'm not, I'm I'm not ready to love again quite yet. But when oh. when I get there, 
Who I'll, hurt you, George? I'll let you. Oh, I mean, you do know who hurt me. But <laughs> that's true, I do. But I will eventually love again. <laughs> and that goes out to all of you, listener out there. <laughs> that goes out to you, uh, Keith. Oh, Keith. Keith what are Keith's Keith? doing tonight? Keith, I actually listening? listening to this live. What if yeah. all of a sudden, like, a, another Zoom box popped up and it was just some dude named Keith? He was like, hey, guys. Hey, he he Zoom bombs us. I really love this season. It's yeah, really the great, great season, guys. Um, Yeah. Uh, by the way, I, yeah, here's my dick. Um, <laughs> What do you think? It's like, Keith. God Keith, damn it, Keith. don't show me your dick. Come Keith. on, dude. Keep it PG. What the Keith, fuck? Keith, I don't want to see your dick. God. I was Liam Graybeard Billingham. I'm now George Whitebeard Forgopolis after this very long episode. <laughs> and this was Uberbusters. Peace all. Goodbye. Bye. It's something unpredictable. This is a song Charles Manson stole from the Beatles. We're Liam, stealing it back. Liam is slowly being lowered into a vat of molten lava. And-